Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the White Witch Podcast with me, Carly. Hope you are all well, witches. I made a decision not to do a book review for today because this episode is going to be quite long and I don't think I can get into it enough. Today's episode is all about spirit work. Now, I don't know what it is. Perhaps it's Beltane, perhaps it's recent events, but I find myself exploring shadow work again. It's strange because I brought shadow work to the podcast at an odd time before when we were all in the midst of a pandemic lockdown, yet it was the first time shadow work had really come up on my radar. At that time, I had no one to sit with but myself, so it made sense for me to get into it, and I know many of you did too. Traditionally, it's usually seen as a time to do it in the autumn and winter months, but for me, that's never necessarily been perhaps the case. Let me spill some tea quickly. After the Love Witch episode, the strangest thing happened to me. My ex, who I quote said was amazing on that episode, the one that I was with last year, got in touch with me after listening to the podcast. If you would have told me that an ex of mine or any of my exes listened to the podcast, I would have probably fallen off my chair. Anyway, we spoke. I got lost in that nostalgia and the deep-rooted belief that perhaps we had a chance. After all, why have I still got these feelings for him and so on? It lasted a week of us talking before I realised all the same old issues were there. My intuition was going bonkers. I felt all over the place, ignoring my gut instincts until I had to call it all off. Nothing had changed. I had changed. He had changed, but the issues we held remained the same. Coming back to the Love Witch episode and the ghost of my ex coming back into my life, I spoke to one of my besties, Mary. She's been in my life forever and she now works as a relationship coach. She has a podcast called Dating Debriefed. She has released a book, yet her and I know each other way back when both our lives were completely different. We weren't doing anything like now. One thing she said to me was that there are three questions you should ask yourself if ever you are considering getting back with an ex. They are as follows, and I thought I would share these with you if ever you find yourself in the same predicament, and this is a little bit of a follow-up to that episode. There's quite a few different themes on this episode today. I hope it might save some of you from the same fate. So question one, why did it break down and have these matters been resolved? 
Question two, what are your needs and can your needs accurately be met by this person? This applies also for them with you too. Question three, where are these feelings of wanting to get back together coming from? Is it from loneliness, uncertainty for the future or just the unknown? Or are you in a good place and you just want to move forward with this person? So I wish I had had these questions before I tried ruining my life again. No, I'm joking. It certainly wasn't that bad. We handled it very maturely in the end. Then I saw a meme when I was coming to work on this episode, which was always going to be about spirit work, but it somehow seamlessly linked the two. The meme was about psychological necromancy, dredging up old memories of people, relationships and things said to you for the purpose of torturing yourself. I realise I absolutely do this and I know many of us do. I have still got these ghosts wandering around in my life that really need to be exercised or rather in my mind. It's always been a trait of mine and I think I need to start evicting people from my brain and stick them in the raggy doll bin. That's triggered another memory, like who remembers the programme The Raggy Dolls? So psychological necromancy is all those things we haven't dealt with in the past. Perhaps mistakes we have made, Instead of us leaving them dead and buried, we pull them out of the past and let all the would-haves, could-haves, should-haves happen again. The thing that annoys me most is me going back to this ex was me going against my intuition that was practically screaming at me towards the end of our relationship. I know that my intuition is never wrong, yet I doubted myself. It's okay that I did that, but I wish that I could have stood firm in my instinct to just save myself a little bit of pain. Some other psychological necromancy habits are replaying hurtful things an ex said or someone that hurt us, telling ourselves we deserved it or that we will never find anything better, and also using our memories and experience to punish and hurt ourselves. Sometimes this is purely because we can't control what triggers it, so it occurs. At times, it could be because we're in a bad mood, we decide to rake over the coals. Sometimes it's to hurt ourselves if we are in a bad place and simply want to beat ourselves up. Yet, mistakes of the past give us such wisdom. They shape us into who we are I personally have made many, many mistakes, but I also recognise how far that I've come. Looking back shows us how far we have come. The past is our story that we can read to learn a lesson. Sometimes we might need to read it twice or perhaps even more. I mean, twice as I did in this situation for the moral of the story to sink in and to truly learn from it. So have you ever had that situation when you have well and truly learnt or been burnt with the moral of the story, but you keep rereading it? I know that I have. Sometimes it's after we've changed the behaviour, made or attempted to make amends, learnt the consequences, yet we are still reliving that situation in our mind, unable to let go, wearing that pain for so long and forgetting who we are without it being haunted indefinitely with no idea how to exercise the ghost. 
There's no use to it. Nothing good comes of it. And at the end of the day, all you're left with is a bad mood and a burden of regrets. The past is a map of where we've been and we get to learn from it. We get to cross those places off on the map with the knowledge that there are better places ahead and we are better equipped to handle them. So here are some of the ways we can work through this. The information on psychological necromancy came from a website called www.selfloverainbow.com. The ABCs of combating psychological necromancy. Number one, accept that the past does not define you. You get to make better choices. You get to rise above it and be something better than what you were before. One of the hardest things to accept is that I'm not that person anymore that made those mistakes. And for those silly little things, I've got to accept that I'm human and everyone has their moments of social awkwardness. I also accept that as a human being, I've had some pretty epic screw ups. I've made some terrible decisions and I can forever beat myself over the head with that and learn nothing new or I can accept that it is a part of me but it is also part of the past. So being in the present and reminding yourself where your path is leading you and where you are going, grounding yourself firmly in the present and in the now. It's a bit like thinking of it like driving a car with wonky steering that keeps perhaps drifting to the left, needing to constantly course correct, get yourself straight again. And when you find yourself feeling yourself drifting back towards those skeletons, pull yourself back, direct yourself away from those thoughts and remind yourself of the present. It's also committing to actively working through it. If redirecting isn't working, it's time to face those feelings and work through them again. Sometimes we think we've learned everything we need to learn from a situation, but that there's one tiny piece missing. And it's often that that piece is simply forgiveness. Sometimes the best way to commit to dealing with those old wounds is to slather love and healing on top of them. Anyway, this is, of course, a witchcraft podcast. I've tried to seamlessly link this in with today's topic, which is spirit work. I am an absolute tart for all things supernatural. We are, of course, on the brink of Beltane here in the Northern Hemisphere and Samhain in the Southern Hemisphere. Beltane to me always feels like a time when the veil is particularly thin. When it comes to spirit work, I am and have always been obsessed, like ridiculously. I've been a member of a circle where we worked on spirit work and divination with spirit. I've worked on psychic retreats along with my very good friend Lee, who is a psychic medium. I've seen some absolutely bonkers things and I'm perpetually thirsty for more, but of course with caution. Witches and spirits have forever been inseparable. We straddle between this and the other world. Even that candle spell is evoking a spirit, at the very least the element of fire. Spirits are necessary for witchery to occur. As witches we walk in the world of spirits, from the plants we craft into potions to the relationships we have with our spiritual helpmates. 
Witchcraft is about working with these spirits. But for many of us, it's also a spiritual journey. It might be that you are a witch who already sees spirits. Perhaps these are spirits that are often around you or frequently visit. These are called familiar spirits. In essence, spirits that you are used to. These can often be ancestors, perhaps people known to you from past lives, spirits that are attracted to you, perhaps even the work that you do. It might be that you have some form of bond or spirit agreement. It's said that these spirits might watch over you, protect you and even your home. They might even assist your spell work if asked and if they are on side with the work or magic that you are doing. It might be that you get the names of these spirits or that you see how they look. It might be that you receive no information like that at all. You are just aware of a presence. It's said that names are not very important to the spirit world as they are to the physical world. I read that sometimes spirits may not be attached to their incarnate names and opt to not use a name or even choose a different name that they wish to be called. That if you don't manage to obtain a name for the spirit, not to worry too much on it. But if you opt to, you can still communicate with them and sense them through their energy and presence. Familiar spirits or spirits known to you are said to make you feel at ease and comfortable that they are present. It might be you are less aware of their presence over other spirits if you see multiple, as you may be more accustomed to their presence. If you have a loved one in spirit visit you, you might feel a shift in the energy as though someone just entered the room. Or you may see something out of the corner of your eye, light movement or even shadows. You can feel or see with your psychic abilities if you can determine who it is. And yes, we do all have psychic abilities. You might instinctively know who it is. Perhaps their energy feels much like it did when they were alive. Sometimes they may even have the same signature scent or an image that you associate with them might be projected to you. You might even want to ask who it is if you are unsure and see if a mental image or answer comes to you in your mind. You might receive a name, letter or an image that you can associate. You might want them to stay if it is someone in spirit that you like. You might opt to talk to them and invite them to stay a while. Although if it's a family member or friend in spirit that you do not have a good relationship with or desire to connect with, it's perfectly okay to ask them to leave. As witches carrying out magic or mediumship, it's said that spirits will be naturally drawn to us anyway. As a result, unwanted or wandering spirits might come into our personal space or home. Considering they are uninvited and we wouldn't let a random living stranger into our personal space, it is necessary to apply some boundaries as we would with the living. Same as a loved one visiting you, you will likely feel a shift in energy when a wandering spirit comes into your spirit radar and psychic senses. You might continuously feel like you do not know who this presence is 
unlike you might with the loved one in spirit. When you feel you have exhausted your attempts to ascertain who it is, if that is what you opt to focus on, then you might wish to ask them to leave. A good way to do this is to speak the following so it's clear. If I know you, you can stay. If not, leave. This also gives you a chance to scan again using your psychic senses. Yes, I promise you, we do all have them to see if you can figure out who this is. If it is perhaps a spirit that's of someone you know or someone you know knows, such as a friend of a friend or a relative of a friend or an acquaintance, or if it's a complete stranger spirit that has wandered over to you. So if you're comfortable enough to communicate with the spirit to get more information, then you can try to do so. However, sometimes you have to set boundaries and simply tell the spirit to leave. This is on a case-by-case basis and you'll have to make sure to set some boundaries. If you want the spirit to leave, stand or sit up as straight as you possibly can, project confidence Clap your hands or ring a bell and tell the spirit to leave. You can even show them to the door and tell them out. Proceed then to cleanse your home spiritually and protect it also in the way you see best. So if you have some spirits that you work with, you might opt to make offerings to them. This is something we discussed in the Patreon Discord recently. So Making offerings to your spirits can be one of the best ways to keep an open dialogue with them and to keep them happy. So you might be unsure what to offer them. However, if they are a former loved one, it might be you know what they were partial to. So the lovely Anna in our Discord advised that she offers up a good cup of tea to one of her ancestors in her spirit work. I think my nanny Rose would love a cup of tea and probably a good fairy cake based on how I remember her. If you are unsure on what to offer up, you might want to meditate on what kind of offering that they want. You could ask them in the meditation, give them a chance to respond in full. You might want to make an offering at your altar space, or you might even create a separate altar space in their honour. An altar doesn't have to be elaborate. It can be very simple. So these are some suggestions of offerings that you might offer to your spirits, depending on what they prefer. So, of course, alcohol, water, food, particularly good ones are cake, bread, fruit, incense, flowers, tobacco, cigarettes, cigars. These offerings can be placed on your altar and given to your spirits. I read that the usual amount of time to leave the offerings would be for sort of three to four days. Again, dispose of your offerings how you normally would, being careful of wildlife and so on. I would also say like one thing I'm always conscious of is if it's a spirit that might not have had the best relationship with alcohol or I don't know maybe like smoking maybe you might want to consider that because it might be that it becomes a little bit of a tricky issue in regards to offerings they might have really loved it but perhaps it was kind of their downfall so 
you might want to make a call on that yourself. So, of course, protection is needed when working with spirits. Protection is always needed when doing magic. And, of course, working with your familiar or unfamiliar spirits. So this can be done by using protection, dust, powder, oil, salt, incense, protection sprays and other protective methods to create a protection barrier around you and your home. There may, of course, be certain herbs that you work with that are great for protection. Of course, during the autumn months, it's especially important to continue to use protection magic around yourself and your home as the veil thins from the month before Samhain until the month after. Samhain is, of course, the time when the veil is said to be at its most finished. It might be that you work with crystals and opt to use these for protection. Apparently, some of the darkest crystals, often black, offer the most protection. For example, black tourmaline, black kyanite, jet and onyx. I'll be honest, I love a pretty crystal, but I am always a plant magic type witch. So I tend to use those for protection mostly. You might want to create a protective barrier around your home with salt or even eggshells, also known as cascarilla, which is one of my fave protection methods too. So different types of workings, divination and magic that you could do with your spirit familiars. Necromancy is described as any magical working done with spirits, which can be from spells with your common spirits, summoning to graveyard magic. If you have a working relationship and open communication with your spirits, they could well be watching you when you perform your rituals or your spells and magic. So your spirits may assist you when they feel your magic is appropriate. They may block you when your magic isn't in alignment with what should happen. Or they may block your magic or spell to protect you from repercussions, especially when doing perhaps hexing, jinxing or cursing work. Your spirits could be looking out for you and often know what's in your best interest better than you and could assist you when it's appropriate. They may refuse if they don't agree with what you're doing. Working with your spirits can be done for any type of spell work or magic as long as your spirits agree and accept the type of work. This could be work such as money spells, love spells, work spells, protection spells. You can also work with your spirits with divination and communicate with them about a variety of different things, including knowing if a spell or magical working will be successful or perhaps how to go about doing a spell. So while working with spirits can be rewarding, it requires a great deal of respect and understanding of your spirits and what they will and won't assist you with. Building a relationship and connection with the spirits around you will help to keep your magic flowing and can offer a great deal of protection and safety when needed. 
So the simplest advice I came across when it comes to start working with your spirits is to communicate with them every day, whether through meditation, just simply talking out loud or through divination or tarot. So start by building a connection and open line of communication with your spirits and create a stable and mutual relationship first before moving on to working with your spirits in magic and spells. And I get it, working with spirits can sound like a really daunting and haunting concept. So I've also looked at fears that may affect your communication with your spirit team. So firstly, fear of the unknown. So being afraid of what could be out there in the spirit world, including what types of messages that you'll receive, whether you will end up conversing with deceiving spirits or that you will open a door to seeing deceased people everywhere around the clock. It's worth focusing your witchcraft around psychic protection, different ways you can psychically receive messages, how to set boundaries with spirits so that you are only able to see or sense them when you have specifically set the intention to. There is so much beauty, compassion, love, support and encouragement that comes from your own personal spiritual team. So next time you feel afraid to connect with the spirit world, just remember that you do have a whole team of light beings that have your back if you want or need them to. Just remember to ask them since they won't overstep your free will. Secondly, fear that manifests from your subconscious. So we've all heard of the law of attraction, the concept that positivity attracts positive results. And of course, the belief that negativity attracts negative results. And this type of fear is somewhat like that. So metaphorically speaking, if you've at any point in your life been under the notion that spirit communication of any kind is going to lead to scary things, then that can manifest into a deep-seated fear subconsciously that can obviously come back to you. And this can be things such as images, clips from movies, or something someone said ages ago that creates the perception of the spirit world being dark and scary. And that can sometimes seep into your mind when you are trying to deepen your relationship with spirit. So whatever has popped into your mind can sometimes trigger us into wanting to cease all communication or even stop the whole development process. So you might want to, at the time, limit how many scary things you watch until you have a feel that you've gained more of an understanding of what the spirit world feels like, what it really is like. Again, here is a reminder that there are so many beautiful aspects and beings of light in the spirit world waiting to be discovered by us. And always, 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 you know, just ground yourself and use protective measures each and every time you wish to connect with your spiritual team. And in doing so, you should have a loving and support-based interaction. So another point, the fear that you don't deserve a loving spiritual team or that you don't have one. And this can't be further from the truth. Everybody has a spiritual team that tries their best to guide, encourage and support us during our soul's journey in this lifetime. Everybody has spirit guides. We have angels 
ancestors or just simply other higher realm beings, even if we can't feel their presence or notice the signs that they are trying to give us. And not only does everybody have a spiritual team, but everybody deserves one. And it doesn't matter if you see yourself as a good witch or a bad witch or a sinner or a saint. If we are at rock bottom in our life or if we are more than abundant than we ever thought we could be, they will always be there to cheer you on regardless of your circumstances. If you are having trouble connecting with your spiritual team, try asking for more signs to appear through meditations, dreams, through perhaps automatic writing. You might want to try that or just through your everyday life. Maybe just set that intention and continue to live your life day to day. Patience is key here. Trying not to obsess over how or when your sign will show up. I had to make a decision recently and I asked Spirit if they could give me a sign. And the sign that came to mind immediately was crocodiles. I didn't get any signs for the first couple of days. I then had a barrage of crocodile symbols. Honestly, I don't know how I could have simply seen any more. It was like everybody was wearing Lacoste, which of course has got the little crocodile logo. And everywhere I went, there was just crocodiles. If ever I went on to... I don't know, like like TikTok, there were just a ton of alligator and crocodile videos to the point I even got specific and I was like, no, no, I said crocodiles, not alligators, and it switched up. But yes, it's really good at times if you can just put out the request for a sign. And I'm telling you, like it really does work if you just have the faith and you let it do its thing. So one truly valid fear is fear of the discernment process, discerning between your loving spiritual team and a possible lower vibrational being disguising themselves as a member of your spiritual team. Knowing whether a spirit is bad or good isn't something that is clearly defined in any book. An encounter with a good or bad spirit can invoke all sorts of feelings and emotions in an individual. Some experiences may make someone feel extremely bad and may make an individual want to avoid or hide away from anything that focuses on spiritual practices. Other spiritual encounters may be beautiful, enlightening and life-altering where an individual becomes curious to know more, leading them to seek out other ways to keep connecting with a good spirit. Here are some common differences between good and bad spirits and what the experience may look or feel like. Now, I'm just going to say a little bit of a caveat because everybody has different experiences when it comes to the spirit world. And these might be at total odds to what you've experienced. I also want to say I cover so many topics on the podcast. As you can imagine, there are some that I really work with within my craft. There are others that I research for the podcast. They fascinate me, but I obviously can't kind of do it all. So often I'm learning alongside you guys. And, you know, I just want to make that clear that I don't always know the answers. I go down the rabbit hole. I do an intense amount of research. But yes, just a little bit of a caveat, like your experiences might be completely different. And I just want to honor that. Anyway, 
So the air that surrounds you changes. And it said that generally when the air is cooler than normal or when you find cold patches of air in specific areas of a house or room, that this is considered to be the work of a bad spirit. You may have read various chilling and eerie tales where the air goes stale and cold or that people notice an obvious sense of evil within maybe a specific room. When it is a good spirit, the air sensation may offer a sense of comfort and calming. This might be refreshing or warmer than usual, and it offers an individual a sense of peace. So there might be either negative or positive signs within your surroundings. So good spirits are said to not want to intentionally scare you. That is not their purpose by any means. They will offer feelings of peace, tranquility and comfort. Again, where they can, I have heard of, you know, familiar spirits and unintentionally scaring someone. And that person has had to sort of say, can you not do that? You're scaring me. The signs of a good spirit are said to be commonly noted as things like the flickering of bright lights. I've had an experience of that. I went to see a tarot reader and she said to me, when you go home, something is going to happen in your house and it's going to be your granddad to signify that it's him that you've spoken with today. I already knew it was him. I had a conversation word for word. I got home and the lights in my flat would not stop blaring, like glaring. It was ridiculous. They were so intense. I thought that they were going to burst and it just continued and continued until I said, okay, granddad, I get it. And it stopped. And that never happened to me before ever. She warned me that it would, it did. And it was just not normal behavior for the lights in my flat. Anyway, also warm patches of air within a room, maybe a comforting touch that you cannot see, and even the sounds of soft music in the distance. Bad spirits are said to want to make themselves known for all the wrong reasons. So they want to bring negativity to a place or a person by scaring them. They might blow out candles, drop pictures, break mirrors, just create a spooky ambience in one's home. They are not there to do any good for you. So it's best obviously not to encourage them to stick around. They are often a spirit that is either stuck and cannot move on to the spiritual realm that they wish or they linger around to haunt and maybe get revenge on a person, place or thing. So this is a very understandable fear because this can happen in regards to discerning if a spirit is good or bad. Just as there are many different people with different personalities and intentions, there are also many different personalities and intentions that spirits have in the spirit world. So I read that to help get past this fear, it is imperative that you gain as much knowledge and practice as you can in the department of grounding and psychic protection before you jump into channeling and perhaps kind of doing readings for yourself or other people with the support of spirit. Once you've learned how to ground and protect properly, you might want to call on the team of angels that you have or your gatekeeper spirit guide 
to ask them to help become like security guards during your conversations with spirit. If you do happen to run into a lower vibrational being, it is very important to set boundaries and demand that this spirit leave you immediately. Just as you wouldn't, again, allow strangers to come and make your home his or her home, you need to make it clear that you are not a host for lower vibrational beings. You are always in control of your psyche. So another fear is that you are just using your creative imagination and not actually connecting with your spiritual team. This is a huge one. It again takes a lot of dedicated practice, faith and trust to move past this fear. We've talked about this a lot in regards to things like shamanic journeying and so on, which I know is a different kettle of fish, but it is, you know, trusting your intuition, your instinct, things that come up for you. So in order to begin moving past this fear, we can take the time, have the patience to learn to work on perhaps controlling our thoughts. Because spirit will send you impressions that will sound like thoughts in your own voice, mental pictures or movies in your mind's eye or emotional feelings. And it can be confusing in the beginning to know if it was you personally or spirit sending you those impressions. So having a regular meditation practice, and again, this is something that I really work on, even if it's only 10 minutes a day. Sometimes I don't even get to 10 minutes a day, but I really find those messages start to come through like a barrage, honestly. And this can help you learn to differentiate the thoughts and feelings that come to you as yours or as spirits. Again, automatic or free writing regularly can also help you to differentiate you and spirits wording. Another fear is, of course, judgment from others. So I know things are changing. People are more accepting of psychics and mediums more than ever before. For those that do seem judgmental, it's often likely that they've been ill-informed. They are afraid themselves. That is a huge one. Or have no knowledge about what the spirit world is really like. People are going to have opinions and you likely won't be able to change them. It's also not your job to change anybody else's viewpoints or beliefs. Like I'm always struggling with this. If they're meant to like become aware of this in this lifetime, they will when it's the right time for them. Just as you don't need to tell everybody that you meet that your favorite color is purple, you don't necessarily have to tell everybody you meet that you communicate with the deceased if you don't feel comfortable in doing so. Again, I feel like this is, you know, similar for the craft. I feel like you know who you can talk to about these things and interestingly enough, I just want to add a little bit of a shout out to a lovely listener. She is in Iran. And so this is a country that, believe it or not, the podcast gets a huge amount of listens in countries that witchcraft is definitely banned. Like it is something that you could go to jail for. And this just got me thinking this whole part of spirit works about 
this lovely lady that emailed me, again, I can't say any names, I can't say anything, of course, for her protection, but she literally lives in a country where she is a lone witch, she's a solitary witch, there's nobody in her life that practices the craft, she's very drawn to it, she practices, she can't even purchase the books, understandably, in her country, because if anyone were to find out that she follows the craft, she would go to jail. And I think that is so courageous that she knows, like it's in her blood, like it's in her heart that she wants to study the craft, like she sees the beauty in it. And she can't buy a book on the craft. And I say that just with the utmost admiration that she has the balls to actually still study or in her own way, like do and connect with what she loves. And, you know, sometimes that is life. Like I know that I get to be very loud and proud about being a witch. I wouldn't say proud, like I am proud of being a witch, but I mean, you know, you don't have to shout it from the rooftops, what you're doing. It is, it's admirable to still be doing what you love and there may be people in your life that you cannot express that to, but you still connect with what you love and you still do it. So if this is something that you want to do and, you know, you might be someone that's already kind of really connected to spirit, like you can't even help it. And yet you can't have these open conversations with anybody around you. So it is very much up to us what we communicate with with other people in regards to what we love. And I think I'm beginning to learn that myself. Like, I don't have to tell everybody everything. So yes, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I just wanted to commend that amazing lady, basically, that contacted me and say how in awe I am of her and recognize that, you know, we, we can love what we love and not have to share it with people that aren't going to appreciate it. I'm going to stop waffling. I'm very excited about today's episode. You can tell because I'm like, you know, not breathing properly. (laughs) Anyway, so another fear that we can often have with spirit work is the fear of making mistakes or feeling like a fraud. So obviously everybody makes mistakes and, you know, it is a bit like learning a new language when we try to converse with our spiritual team. We won't become fluent overnight, in a week, likely not even in a month. You know, it can take a long time to form a, I don't even want to say crystal clear connection because I don't even think I've got that. I just think that I have to have some trust and faith in what I do have. It's like playing a game of charades, like trying to interpret the messages from spirit So today when I was meditating and again, talking about the X situation, I literally saw in my mind's eye a car rolling over like in a crash, but I was outside like my grandma's house, which would have been back in like the nineties. And I just kind of got this message of (laughs) like your former relationships are like a car crash. Stop looking at the past. And I don't know. That's all I got. You know, that that literally was what I got because my common denominator is to always go to the past, as we discussed earlier. So 
you know, I just knew when that message came up, what what the rolling, crashing car and the image of it, my grandma's, what it related to, and it just pieced together. Like sometimes you can't even explain how it's come to that. So yeah, trying to receive a symbol that comes purely from spirit and not from your own subconscious. And then on top of that, you try to translate what those symbols mean to yourself And again, that message could have come from my grandma. That could have been my grandma showing me how she could represent the past. I don't know. You could be receiving an accurate symbol, but perhaps the actual meaning varies from the meaning itself, like the meaning that you think it does, or the meaning might pop up to you later on, and then you'll get your aha moment for that symbol. Same as me saying that now, I've literally, As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com just thought perhaps that was my grandma sending me that because it's a shared visual that we've both had if you are perhaps doing a reading for somebody else and they want to know about their future and what will happen again it's like that knowing that nothing is ever set in stone people have free will and every thought intention and action can create new pathways from what you may be seeing for them from that one moment in time and as a result of all their previous thoughts, intentions and actions. So you're not a fraud, okay? So it's like knowing and acknowledging that and just keeping practicing and, you know, journaling new symbols that you receive, communicating with your spiritual team and over time, like just finding that the accuracy will improve and trusting in it. So... You might want to, before initiating spirit contact, even before trying to contact your spiritual team, you might want to conduct a ritual of some sorts that feels right for you. And this might be one that you use before and after meditation, or if you're doing any like channeling or any divination. 
So you can get yourself to a point where you feel as clear headed as possible. So worries, stress, anxieties, or any other negative feelings can really lower our vibrations. It's really important to work on raising your vibration so that you can meet higher vibrational beings at a level they can lower their vibration too. So you might, before you meditate or communicate with your spiritual team, once you unload all of your worries and negative feelings through pen to paper, you can then affirm that there is nothing you can do about these stresses and you don't want to be bothered by them during your sacred connection time. You might want to visualize them dissipating or melting away. It might even be helpful for you to fold up the piece of paper, put it in another area of your home until you are finished connecting with your spiritual team. One of the ways that I tend to connect with my spiritual team is on waking. Like my first thing is to meditate because that way I've got no other external influence that has got into my head. I haven't even had time to worry about things. I simply get to my altar, sit down and meditate. And I find that that really works for me. So this is, of course, the time when you will do a lot of work on grounding your spirit and putting up your psychic boundaries or shield. So for me, when I do this, I often like to visualize myself sitting with my feet out in front of a huge, big oak tree. My back is like nestled into the oak tree. I feel like it's really supporting me and it is looking over me when I do this work. I don't know where this came from. I know that trees are always a big part of grounds and meditations and so on, but I very much kind of like to think I saw this in my mind and the oak trees behind me and I feel like it looks over me and everything that goes on in the realm that I'm in whenever I'm meditating or journeying or kind of doing any grounding work. So I like to imagine that roots are coming out of my feet into the ground and they are coming down to meet the oak tree's roots. They go really deep down into the dark soil. I like to visualize myself removing anything negative from my body. Again, all of those emotions and feelings that aren't necessarily going to serve me when it comes to any magic work or, you know, any work that I'm doing where I need to be grounded. So I see myself taking anything negative from my crown all the way through my head, down through my neck, so past my throat so I can speak more freely from my heart, very important, from my chest, from like your shoulders, any tension, any burdens, through my stomach, so any knots that I might have there, or, you know, just gut, any gut feelings, you know, anything that's negative that I just need to let go of, down through my spine, so anything that might be affecting like my back, you know, we all have these kind of spiritual aches and pains in our bodies. And I like to see everything leaving my body. So coming down through my legs, out through my feet, into those roots. And I like to see the soil taking all that is negative that I have rid my body of and doing what it does best, like just recycling it, turning it into something good. Then I like to see these roots obviously coming 
back into me from the ground and golden light that comes up through those roots into my feet. And this golden light is like warm. It's like sunshine on your bones when you haven't seen the sun for ages. You know that feeling. And it just comes up into my feet and it makes its way up into my legs, up into my body. It like makes its way into my heart and it like bursts through my heart. My heart's like beaming with, you know, all that sunshine energy. And I like to see it going up through my throat. So it kind of clears the way so I can speak whatever I need to speak. And then it goes up into my crown and, you know, into my third eye and it clears the way. And then it just bursts up through my crown, up into the leaves the branches of the big oak tree above me. Anyway, so that's like how I like to ground myself. And I feel like that connects me to like the heavens or I don't know, like the angelic realms, whatever they are, just like to above. So you can also like put a shield around your entire being or aura with the intention of only allowing loving spirits to contact you. And you might want to use a color. So perhaps like purple, which is, of course, really good for any psychic work. This also allows apparently like only good spirits to contact you. Pink is said to only allow loving energies through to you. And you might want to also call on like your spirit guide or if you work with, I don't know, like any archangels, apparently Archangel Michael is very good to have on board if you do any work like this and need protection. But for me, I call on my spirit guide, but I also call on my deities. So these guides and, you know, your deities or whoever you want to call upon, in essence, can screen the spirits trying to come through and send the lower vibrational ones who do not have the best intentions on their way and out of your psyche. So you might also want to um, create the intention of only contacting the highest beings of love and light. And this can simply be by making the statement either in your head or out loud that you will only interact and allow messages to come from source. So like deity, great spirit, the universe, higher light spirit guides, ancestors, angels, ascended masters, or deceased loved ones who will provide you with love, encouragement, and the guidance that is for the highest, best for yourself and others. And when you are finished conversing with spirit, so I would say always say thank you, say thank you to your spirit guide. If you worked with an archangel like Archangel Michael, your angels, your deities, whomever you have communicated with, of course, just being really polite and making sure that you finish things up correctly, letting them know that you are going to be leaving now. So that's quite a lot this episode today, but there's even more because with Beltane and obviously Samhain happening, if you're the other side of the world, I thought I'd give you a little bit of a ghost story. And this ghost story kind of tags on to an old episode where we talked about 
I don't know, like the land near us and finding out about spirits and things like that. And I made a very empty threat that I was going to look into the land near where I lived. And if there were any hauntings or any kind of ghostly spirits or things that happened. And I was very surprised to find that there actually was. There was somewhere that when it was in existence was up there apparently with Borley Rectory as being very haunted and having lots of supernatural activity. So join me after the break. Forget the house on Haunted Hill. I'm going to tell you the story of Underhill House. This is the story of Underhill House, one of England's lost house of horrors. Nestled between Cheriton and Sandgate in Folkestone is a pretty parish with a friendly community made up of old and new build houses. It's said that this land was referred to as Caesar's camp in ancient times and in pre-Roman times there was a fort here. The area where Underhill House sat was said to originally be of another residence to a Mr Riddle. The Duke of Richmond was in contact with the exiled Charles II which during Cromwell's Commonwealth was a dangerous activity. To avoid capture within England, the Duke organised to be concealed within subterranean passages below Mr Rittle's home in the Folkestone area. The woods here were named Richmond's Shade as a result, and later on Mr Rittle was rewarded by the Duke of Richmond governorship of Upnor Castle, after the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. Records show the Brockman family acquired the land in 1794. Richmond Shade Woods were cut down not long after. It's believed that Underhill House was built on the land formerly owned by Mr Rittle and provides possibility that the subterranean passages that the Duke of Richmond once hid within still exist somewhere under the fields to this day. But not everyone knows about the haunted building and the tragic tales of suicide that cast a dark shadow over the area. A new housing estate sits close to where a large manor house, known at one time to be England's most haunted, once resided. The land is owned by the MOD and is used for stabling and grazing horses. However, scatterings of bricks and some bumps in the ground of the house's foundations are all that remain of Underhill House on the land. The barn that belonged to the original house is still present, tucked away in a corner of a field. The horrific tales centre on the former Underhill House which was built on St Martin's Plain in 1840. This haunted mansion apparently sat amongst 1.46 acres of land and comprised four bedrooms. Until the railways acquired the port in this area in 1842, the town had little significance other than a port for smugglers. 
Tragedy started with a man named Robert Alred Den, who was an occupant of the building during its early years. Robert Alred Den came from a renowned local family, one of four children he was born in 1838. His father was a bailiff to the town corporation of Lyd on 23 occasions, as well as Lieutenant and Justice of the Peace for the County of Kent. In 1863, Robert married Emma May Honeywood at St George's in London, and at the end of that year, they welcomed a baby boy back to their home, Underhill House. Their happiness didn't last long, as a few months later, their baby son died. Robert went on to become a highly esteemed figure in Cheriton. Much like his father, he served as a Justice of the Peace, a Deputy Lieutenant and as Secretary for the East Kent Hunt. There was even talk of him running for Parliament in the future. Newspapers, however, reported on him as having intense and groundless depression with insidious attacks of fiendish delusions. He was also said to have a bluish hue to his skin, which would of course have been quite alarming. This was as a result of his continuous use of silver nitrates to help control his increasing epileptic fits. Robert claimed to have noticed an evil presence within Underhill House's four walls, following his newborn baby dying. This was believed to have also contributed to his later state of mind and depression. In 1881, he suffered a horse riding accident. He was riding his horse at the rear of another woman's horse. Her horse lashed out suddenly, striking Mr. Den with its hoof, just above his ankle, breaking his leg. This series of events, his son's death, his epilepsy, and the breaking of his leg weighed heavily on his soul in his dark final days during the winter of 1887. In the weeks before his death, many noticed his manner and demeanour was much changed. His doctor claimed he was suffering from despondency and a great deterioration in his personality. Robert was continuously imagining himself a ruined man. This was also confirmed by his legal advisor, Mr. Wilkes, who visited him in his final days. Robert was convinced he was on the verge of bankruptcy and planned on selling all his assets, believing he had no funds to live on. Mr. Wilkes tried to alleviate his fears. He advised him that he was in no state of mind to take on that task but also that it wasn't necessary as he was entirely solvent, owing no man anything. He claimed Robert was frightened of his own shadow. Alas, no one could assist Robert Den with the path he was to walk down, and no one will ever fully understand what was haunting him. Sometime after 10pm on Friday 26th of November 1887, Robert Alred Den climbed the stairs of Underhill House to his room and ended his life sitting upright in bed with the use of a single bullet. The candle by his bed had been extinguished, so the deed must have been done in the dark.
At the inquest into his death, he was said to have an estate of £13,000, which by today's money would have been in excess of a million pounds. It still remains a mystery as to what could have led him to believe he owed so much money. His grave is present in his hometown of Lyd, along with his wife Emma's and his sons. Emma sold the house in 1892. She passed away 12 years after Robert. In 1794, a military camp was established at Shorncliffe, which became pivotal during Napoleonic Wars. In the 1930s, the army took possession of the vacant Underhill House. Brigadier William Norman Herbert took up residence here before a murder and a suicide of two domestic staff at Underhill House took place in 1934. Charles Albert Jay became a valet for Brigadier Herbert when he was commanding officer of the Northumberland Fusiliers. He joined Herbert when he moved to Underhill House in March 1932. Edith Mayhire also worked for Brigadier Herbert, moving from the Warwickshire area to work as a maid from 1934 onwards at Underhill House. May and Charles the valet were said to have had a relationship of sorts that turned sour. Brigadier Herbert reported that Charles had begun to act strangely and suffer with fits of temper. The brigadier spoke to Charles of some money he had gone missing and following that Charles acted very strangely. Charles asked the brigadier if he might be able to take May out the following day for her birthday. The brigadier agreed. However, May didn't seem keen to go, according to the cook. The cook said that she was unsure about Charles. The gardener's wife confirmed that May said Charles had wanted to marry her, but she had refused, that she had a young man back home in Warwickshire, and that she wasn't fond of Charles's temper. The day of May's birthday, the cook saw Charles and May at tea around 5pm. Before leaving for dinner that day, the brigadier saw May in the kitchen at 7pm. He was surprised as he thought she should have been out at that time with Charles. He left shortly after for his dinner. The cook returned to the house at 9pm to find the house all in darkness. She had to bang on the front door for someone to open up as a key hadn't been left out for her as usual. Charles came and opened the front door. He claimed May had gone out to the little shop, which the cook found odd in itself as there was no little shop anywhere near the house. She offered to take up and leave a hot water bottle for May in her room on her return. But Charles was keen for her to stay away from her room, making excuses of May liking her hot water bottle piping hot when first made. Charles then headed to the Britannia Inn and he seemed by others in the pub to be somewhat inebriated and agitated. Back at Underhill House, it turned out that a bottle of port, 
a bottle of sherry and half a bottle of whiskey were missing from the brigadier's sideboard. Somewhat drunk, Charles staggered back to Underhill House. The brigadier came home to find him in the kitchen writing letters. It was odd to the brigadier he was still up, as Charles often headed to bed early to rise. The next morning, Charles was late to wake the brigadier. He did enter the brigadier's room, leaving something on a table close to the end of his bed. The brigadier called out for Charles to bring him a cup of tea. However, Charles shouted out, he was busy for a moment and could he possibly ask May to bring him one? The brigadier called out for May to bring him a cup of tea too, yet had no response. The brigadier eventually knocked on May's door to receive no response at all. Her door was locked and the brigadier came to realise Charles had left a key on the table at the end of his bed when he had greeted him that morning. Brigadier Herbert ended up opening May's bedroom door with that key to find her body cold and dead upon her bed. The police were called and the housekeeper notified them she had seen Charles that morning with a gun. They burst open Charles' locked door to find him shot in the chest. A double barrel shotgun belonging to the brigadier from his gun cabinet to the left of him. He later died that afternoon at 2.30pm in hospital. May had been strangled by Charles and the letters Charles wrote, the one to the brigadier, simply read... Dear sir, I'm sorry to cause you all this trouble. Also, poor dearest May. As you know, I like May very much. There is many people after May. Good night, sir, and all my love to you, Jay. After World War II, the army sold the property for it to be converted into a hostel for students. Andrew Green wrote about Underhill House in its time as a hostel. He actually referred to it as Glebe House during this period. Andrew Green was a paranormal writer and investigator. His account of Underhill House was that it had a peculiar atmosphere of dread and silent horror, that it had many cold spots. He also claimed However, little evidence is available to us and the MOD cannot confirm these accounts that an army lieutenant committed suicide by shooting himself in the entrance hall before World War I due to his excessive gambling debts. He also claimed an army padre, a lieutenant colonel who committed suicide within a large storage airing cupboard as he was distraught at the merging of his regiment, hung himself from a water pipe. It's also accounted in one of Andrew Green's books that the army padre had actually performed an exorcism at Underhill House. An extra suicide was also added of a soldier committing suicide in the stables, again unfounded. Two women staying in the house when it was a hostel 
claimed a soldier came out of the wall of the room they were sleeping within and glided down the corridor. Another account was of a lady hearing footsteps in the house. She knew no one else should be present within the house, so came out to investigate, entering the corridor to witness the figure of a woman slip into one of the bedrooms. When she entered the bedroom, there was no one there. This is the same room dogs supposedly refuse to enter. And it's believed this ghost could be of the murdered chambermaid making her way into her former bedroom. Dogs were also said to be reluctant to climb the stairs at Underhill House. There was the incident of a heavy laundry basket that two students couldn't carry that seemed to disappear and was found outside the large airing cupboard, mysteriously left there where the Padre was said to have committed suicide. Laid cutlery for dinner guests was said to mysteriously disappear and cutlery that was relayed as a result also disappeared. The figure of a man in a salt and pepper suit was often seen in the doorway of the cellar. In October 1974, Andrew Green, along with two colleagues, had his own haunting experience at Underhill House. Leaving to go for a lunch break, they took the stairs, only to hear the tinkling of glass in the corridor. On turning around, the men saw a lamp bulb some 10 feet away from them rolling around on the floor. It was warm when Andrew picked it up, yet it could not have been as the electricity supply had been cut off some months earlier. The filament was still intact, so they wondered what could have caused the sound. Anyone who dared to stay at Underhill House reported missing objects, or belongings being moved to locked rooms. Eerie voices were heard in the empty kitchen and the ghost of one vacant army officer in a large coat was often seen. It was in 1978 when the building met its own tragic fate and burnt to the ground in a fire. Military sources reportedly blamed an electrical fault for the blaze, although there was some scepticism over whether the neglected building had any power connected to it at all. Underhill House had of course remained derelict and abandoned for years. The formal cause of the fire remains to be a mystery. For decades afterwards, all that remained of the premises was the old stable block. And despite time moving on and the landscape adapting with modern life, the community has often cited spooky goings on. Some 13 years ago in 2008, there was the sighting of a man with a horse in the nearby area, sparking fears that the ghosts of the former Underhill house remain ever more present. 
Have an amazing Beltane or Samhain, wherever you are, witches. Lots and lots of witchy love. Mm-hmm.